0: It's Meredith Monday. Okay, uh, welcome everyone to Meredith Monday. Uh, it's Meredith Monday without Chris, and it's without Mike, and it's with me. It's with Andre, Mike's away, as you know and uh we'll be back soon but um for now it's me standing in for him giving a well-deserved break i do not know how he does this every day i really do not know how he does it it's taken me heaps and heaps of time the tech stuff alone is a bit of a nightmare so um uh yeah hats off to mike it's given me a newfound respect for what he does and for Chris, who does the glory cloud, and comes onto this one. So, I mean, that is crazy. Uh, so, uh, anyway, here I am, and I'm doing this. My name's Andre. I'm a pastor from uh, the UK, from Bethesda Baptist Church in Felixstowe. Uh, we are a reformed and evangelical church here, part of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. Now, i got to say, I know that there are some massive Kleinians who listen to this. And um, I, everything I know about Meredith Klein, I agree with and appreciate. Uh, I almost agree with everything that I've heard about him. I, I think it, I have huge admiration for Meredith Klein. And uh, in some weird way, Kleinian theology has really influenced me. But I have to say that I am not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's uh i haven't even finished reading kingdom prologue it's it's a beast of a book it's really hard i've i've been into some heavy stuff before but this is heavy this is this is next level this is black belt black belt theology stuff and i'm i'm not a i'm not even there yet i'm like i'm like green belt maybe maybe more like an orange belt i don't know um so uh I am saying this to say that if you're like a massive Kleinian, um, I might make some schoolboy errors here. I don't know. Um, I found out that I'm Kleinian the same way I found out that I'm a Calvinist, which is that someone accused me of being a Calvinist. And then I was like, oh, I wonder what that is. I went and looked it up and I was like, yep, I'm a Calvinist. And pretty much the same thing happened with with Klein stuff. I was accused of being a Kleinian. had no idea what that meant. Went back and looked it up. Um now that come to think of it, I, that's more or less how I discovered most of my theological positions, As I was accused of being things, and it turned out that I was, was right. Although I was once accused of being an antinomian, I don't think I am, so that's one that went the other way. Um, so uh, I um, am going to try and bring some Meredith Monday stuff over to something I'm a little bit more comfortable with, which is the whole area of hermeneutics and exegesis. And so um, I thought, I, I'm really interested in this, actually. I would really like to know more about Kleinian hermeneutics. Um, so I've been doing a little bit of thinking about this recently. And just as I've been reading through um, Kingdom Prologue, and I've, been, I've listened to hours and hours and hours of the Glory Cloud podcast. I really appreciate the Glory Cloud podcast. Um, and, Everything that Chris is doing there, and um, I've been sort of going through that with my Kingdom Prologue. But I've also had sort of uh, been trying to keep a, a bit of an eye out for, um, you know, how how Klein interprets the Bible. What is his What is his thinking about how you should interpret the Bible? What is his hermeneutics? And and um, I've I've sort of made a couple of observations here, and I. I hope uh, that I'm doing it justice. Um, But there are some major sort of questions about hermeneutics that um, I think Klein helps us to navigate um, through some of the kind of difficult areas and the questions and uh, should we, shouldn't we? And I think Klein demonstrates how to do this well. I I actually think that uh, so far, I'm not going to try and be critical. I'm just going to point out some of the good things that I see um, here. So I hope this does justice to it. Uh, maybe if if it's a if I get this completely wrong, if I misrepresent Klein, then I you know, yeah, Mike, Chris, you're very welcome to come in and fix it afterwards. Um, it's your fault you left me with this. So here we go. Um, okay, so here's uh, I've made six notes on, on why I think um, on why th- or, or or how I think Klein views hermeneutics or aspects of his hermeneutics. The first is this, uh, his use of general revelation. This is probably um, the most well-known thing about him. Uh, He uh, is famous for his work on ancient Near Eastern covenants, and uh, in particular, his kind of distinguishing between the suzerain vassal covenants and the royal covenants. And, um, I mean, I didn't know anything about Klein, but even I knew that, and so... um, That's a big thing of his. And that's obviously had a massive impact on the way that he reads the Bible, on his hermeneutics and his exegesis and his understanding of the covenants. Um, And that raises quite a big question, actually, in hermeneutics. Because to what extent should um, scientific knowledge, archaeological knowledge, historical knowledge, uh, to what extent should general revelation have an impact on our understanding of special revelation? Uh this is really important because if you get into something like um the framework hypothesis, which is another Kleinian thing though uh I first heard about it through Henri blochet, who I think got it from klein so uh the the framework hypothesis is obviously the interpretation of the day is not as six literal twenty four hour periods but as two um uh the pattern of forming and filling, the first three days of forming, the second three days filling, um, and the whole interpretation uh, of the day the days there, not literal. And one of the major criticisms I often hear of the view is that if it weren't for the recent controversies about evolution and age of the earth and carbon dating and all that kind of stuff, we would never have known that. We would never have come to that conclusion. Uh, now, first of all, I don't know if that's actually true. In one sense, I'm not sure that we'll ever really be able to answer that definitively because obviously it, it's hard to, to go back. Once these things are out there, it's hard to dismiss them. Um, but I don't know. So I don't know if, if I accept the the premise of that challenge. But even if we did, even if we did accept the premise of the challenge, would that necessarily... Be a bad thing? Would it be a bad thing for science to inform our Bible reading? Um, This has massive implications not only for how you view the creation days uh, but for to what extent we make use of scholarly trends and things like historical criticism, textual criticism, form criticism redaction criticism now the various forms of criticism which were used mainly as a form of 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 skepticism a kind of unbelief to uh, to dismiss the supernatural authority of the bible um but uh, many evangelical scholars have since seen that actually by using these things rightly from a perspective of faith from a perspective of of agreeing with inspiration, actually it yields quite a lot of fruit. So actually it's been quite useful. But still there is this debate going on. Should we be allowing things like historical criticism to have an impact? Should we be allowing things like evolution to have an impact on the way that we read the Bible? Should we allow the Copernican revolution to have an impact on the way that we read the Bible? Should we allow... Um, the idea that the earth is round and not flat to have an impact on our reading of the Bible. And so uh, these sorts of things are important. I think the, the, the answer has got to be yes. And so when Klein uses the ancient Near Eastern understanding or knowledge of ancient Near Eastern covenants and when he uses the Epic of Gilgamesh and when he uses other ancient Near Eastern resources, I think that's good and right and wise. I think all truth is God's truth. And all truth has a right to have a bearing in the way that we read the Bible. So long as we use it only to clarify and confirm suspicions that already arise out of the text itself. If it's something, if we're imposing something completely foreign to the text, obviously that's wrong. But to clarify and confirm what we already suspect, um, which is what I think what Klein does, then I think that's good. So I think we can learn from the way that Klein uses uh, general revelation to help understand special revelation. The second thing that I thought was worth noting was um, Klein uses the whole Bible, uh, sometimes called the analogy of Scripture. He uses Scripture to interpret Scripture. Um, This is obvious when you get to the whole idea of of covenants. Um, he, He sees very little problem with using the way that the prophets interpret Genesis to interpret Genesis. I think this is right and good. I think this is a very Reformed way of doing it. I think it makes a lot of sense. If we know that the Bible has one ultimate author, which is God, we also know that, there's, that there is an essential unity. That means that if we're given clarity on something that came before afterwards, I think we should make use of that. I know that this will be resisted in lots of sections of the evangelical um, movement that particularly from dispensational sides the idea of using uh, later text to interpret former texts is, is, is controversial I don't think it is, I think Klein seems to place a lot of stock on the fact that um, the later interpretations of earlier chapters, prophetic interpretations of Genesis using Hosea 6-7 to understand that there was a covenant with Adam for example Um, doesn't introduce anything new, it doesn't provide a a new interpretation or a a radically different interpretation to what we should arrive at in Genesis. But it does help us to understand what's actually going on in Genesis, what the author intended. So actually, far from saying we can use the other parts of the Bible to override author's intention, um, actually we can use the whole Bible to help clarify and understand it to pick up things that we've missed. And as 21st century readers who are miles away from the original context and mindset and worldview of the first authors, um, I think we need help. We need help to bridge that gap. And the Bible itself, Sola Scriptura, provides that help for us. So um, I, I think that the, he, and and this is also clear, by the way, in the way he uses the New Testament. The New Testament, obviously, whenever he's interpreting anything, he goes from old to new, back and forth all the time. He's constantly showing how the New Testament has to do with the Old Testament, and the Old Testament has to do with the new. And I think this is wonderful. I think that's what, what's why he is as influential as he is, because it's just so profoundly Christian, the way he reads the Bible. And I, I think this is, this is great. I think this is admirable. Um, so uh, he uses general revelation well. He uses the whole canon, the analogy of Scripture well. Um, But that doesn't mean in any way that he undermines the historical grammatical principles. And I think that's where I just want to go next, is that nobody can dispute that Klein was a heavy-duty grammarian and original languages scholar. Um, As Mike has been saying, not not even John Frame, who has opposed him and gotten into a few kerfuffles with him, that's not... Not even he would deny that. You, you don't want to challenge Klein in his own field of expertise. And his field of expertise is the original languages and their grammar. And, um, and so, yeah, I just... Uh, it would be folly, I think, to accuse Klein of not taking the historical grammatical stuff seriously. I think what we learn from him, though, is not to be literalistic. So um, basic... Kleinian idea that just because the word covenant isn't there doesn't mean that uh, there is no covenant there. Uh, Because a careful study, historical grammatical study, will show you that everything about a covenant is there, even if the word isn't used. And then that gets confirmed for you when you go to later parts of the Bible, which um, again, seem to imply that there is a, a covenant there, even though the word covenant isn't used. And so I think that's really helpful, to be heavily careful with, in, using, in studying the grammar, the syntax, the languages, the context, the immediate literary context, the, uh, the Hebrew figures of speech and parallelisms, and, uh, parallelisms and, and all of that stuff, but not to allow that to turn you into a literalist and this is how i'd sort of the circles i've been in have tended that way oh well, if it doesn't use the word covenant therefore to say there's a covenant is importing some system of theology onto it and i think klein demonstrates that that's not necessarily the case um which leads on to another aspect of, of his hermeneutics which is his use of typology which is really really strong um i've never seen anyone really, with such a strong emphasis on typology. Um, it's, it's, it's emphatic. And it seems to go beyond him saying, um, now this is where I'm, I, I, might, I might be out of line here, and I'm, I, I'd, I'd like to know what some of the, the experts who listen to this think, and I'd like to know what Chris and Mike think about this, but um, it seems to me like he's, he uses typology not only in, in a fuller sense, and in the sense that the divine authorship carries meaning beyond what the human author might have understood, uh, the census plenior, however you say it. Um, but it seems like, actually, Klein would put typology in the category of literal sense. That Actually, uh, the typology doesn't in any way go beyond the author's intention. It's actually part of it. It seems to me like Klein would have no problem seeing um, typology as part of the author's actual intention, that he knew somehow, uh, the author of Genesis knew somehow that what he was saying was going to have a, typo- a typological implications somehow, even if he didn't know all of the details of how that would work out um, exactly. Um, I, I, th- I Personally, I feel like the New Testament tells us the same. It tells us that Abraham... Uh, though he didn't know any of the details, knew that there was more to the promised land, uh, that there were typological implications for uh, the promised land that, that he just couldn't have been explicitly aware of. He, he somehow knew that. And I think Klein shows or places such a huge amount of emphasis on typology that I think he would say that that's part of the author's intention. And I think that's interesting. I think it's, it's quite um, daring, but I think it's right. Um, Fifthly, I think he's got a strong view of inspiration and inerrancy that goes down to every detail, the, you know, plenary inspiration. Uh, And that I think he doesn't miss the details, you know, everything from rainbow colors through to common words that gets picked up through to themes that the average reader, even the average scholar, would overlook. He sees significance in the detail. Um, so so much so that I sometimes wonder if he's seeing significance that isn't actually there. And yet, when you read the arguments, you feel like you'd be hard-pressed to prove that he was reading into it things that, that aren't there. And finally, um, his use of the analogy of faith, uh, or rather, Uh, the analogy of faith doesn't really seem to factor in a huge amount. Uh, What I mean by that is that I think he's not scared of challenging traditional interpretations, uh, challenging traditional uh, theology, and the whole thing about republication. And his view on the Mosaic Covenant, I think, shows that. And I think that's right and admirable. If we are truly to be Protestant, truly to be Christian, truly to, to place God's word uniquely authoritative above the creeds and the confessions, above the systematic theologies and the theologians, uh, then we have to allow our interpretations to provide critique of those, uh, of those traditions, um, but with humility and respect. And I think there's got to be a willingness to say, hang on, Do we need to rethink the way this was worded uh, and not try and pretend that Westminster was inspired in the same way the scripture was? So I think that's the right use of the analogy of faith. I haven't seen him throw it out the window. He's not unconcerned for orthodoxy, yet at the same time is prepared to let the Bible challenge the prevailing understanding of things. And I think that that's good and healthy um, and it is complicated. So there you go. Six points on Kleinian hermeneutics. if, I, if Again, apologies to you Kleinian fanatics if I've gotten this wrong. Uh, I'd, I'd like actually to know, uh, because this is something that I'm looking into just kind of a part-time as a hobby level kind of thing. Um, but I would like to know your thoughts on, on Kleinian hermeneutics. I'd like to know Chris and Mike's thoughts on it, so maybe I could open it up to them as well. Anyway, guys, thanks very much for joining me on this Meredith Monday.